Wow. Those story after story after story is now a part of our story. It is so good to see you tonight, and I am so excited because, you know, we've been talking about unfollowing, hitting the unfollow button. We talked about how Jesus met a man that was bound and in change and into cutting, and Jesus got close to this guy, and Jesus freed him from those chains, and people wanted him to leave as a result of it. How strange is that? We talked about how Jesus came up to the, the rich young man who put himself at Jesus' feet. And Jesus didn't turn him away or didn't say it's too late or you think you're so much better than us. We looked at how uh, that man was called to unfollow what he was led to by Jesus. We looked last night at how Jesus came to this broken and awkward woman who literally um, poured oil all over, perfume all over his feet, made a huge scene, and Jesus loved her. And at the same time, Jesus reached out to a grandma. All these people had close encounters with Jesus, and I just can't help but think tonight, July 31st, 2019, it's time to think of what we need to unfollow in order to move to what God is calling us to follow. Now, I'm kind of embarrassed, not just because when I saw myself on the video, I forget how bald I got. Get over it. Get over it. Thank you. Yeah. You know, my goal was to be rich and famous. And I wanted to be rich and famous. How many people had that kind of goal, generally speaking, you want to be rich and famous? Yeah, for me, it wasn't going to be um, the way my dad was successful. My dad, for seven years, was a major league baseball pitcher. His name's Jay Hook. You can Wikipedia him, whatever. And he's in the history books. Not only, he played from 1957 to 1964. He was uh, on the, on the uh, Cincinnati Reds for three years, and then he was bought when the Mets formed in 1962. Do you know what it's like to grow up with a dad who was a pro ball player, and he also played baseball and basketball at Northwestern University? He played against Wilt Chamberlain when Wilt was a freshman and my dad was a senior. He said that was a freaky thing. Anyway, when it came to baseball, though, he's in the history books because he pitched the first Mets win. How about that? Ever. Yeah, Jay Hook. And he's been to Bayshore. He was a friend of Lou's a long time ago. And he, do you know what it's like to grow up and be really crappy at baseball? <laughs> when, like, what is wrong with me? So I was going to be rich and famous. And my brother was a walk-on at Baylor University as a left-handed relief pitcher. <laughs> but I sure was not. I had to find my own way. I was going to be rich and famous. God made me good at music, and I, I, uh, I thought, I'm going to do that for a while. And then if I'm struggling, I'll go into business, and then and have the family in the backyard and all that. And then when I'm later, I'll do something for God. But God got a hold of me. And when I was a senior in college, out in New York City, God got a hold of me and said, you better get started. Don't wait until you're really old, like 60 years old. That's what I thought when I was 21, to give back to God something. And I thought, 
hey, uh, 80's the new 60. <laughs> so anyways, what, what I realized was God wanted to be get started now. And I did love working with youth. But I thought I could never be a good witness to my Christian faith. Because nothing spectacular ever happened to me. So I thought. Even the first few times when I made the decision to go to seminary and my fraternity brothers, because I was in a fraternity at DePaul University down in Indiana, and I said, they said, well, what are you going to do next year? Because, you know, kind of January of your senior year of college, you have to start talking about it. And I said, well, I'm going to go to grad school. And they're like, oh, what for? And I'm like, well, actually, it's seminary to get the degree that you need to to go into ministry. And nobody, like, freaked out. I don't know why I was so reluctant to say that. I didn't want to have to explain I'm going to seminary, and here's why. I was never struck by lightning. <laughs> I was never down in the gutter, so I thought. I never had some big miraculous thing happen to me. God spoke in an audible voice to my older sister, Marcy, when she was in the Tridelt house at University of Michigan in Ann Arbor and said, first, James. And then he stayed with her. She thought someone was in the room when he spoke that to her. That had a big impact on me when I was in ninth grade. But nothing like that had happened to me. I had never gone deep like that before. Have you ever belittled yourself or belittled your faith? If so, I pray that you repent of the lie that you believed about yourself that was not from God. And you know, if something like that is not from God and you've belittled yourself, it is straight from the pits of hell. And it is my prayer that you don't mess with that ever, ever, ever again. So I was never struck by lightning. I never had what I would consider to be then a close encounter with Jesus. When I was a kid, the movie Close Encounters of the Third Kind was a big movie. Remember the mashed potato scene? Yeah. Yeah. You know, and you read in the Bible and you hear the stories, and now we are so much more susceptible than ever before because everybody puts these great quips and these great quotes on Instagram and on Facebook and these, these dramatic stories. And I was like, I got none of that. What are you doing, Lord, calling me to seminary? Paul was struck by a great light and blinded on the road to Damascus. And then there was a certain man on the side of the road to Jericho, who was rescued by whom? The good Samaritan. There was Simon of Cyrene, who encountered Jesus on the road to Golgotha in the suffering when he had to carry Jesus' cross. There was Mary on the road to the tomb when she met Jesus, even though she thought Jesus was the gardener at first. I'd never had that kind of a on-the-road experience. I'd never been suffering on the side of the road. I'd never been struck by lightning or blinded like Paul. I hadn't experienced the suffering to the extent of Simon of Cyrene and what he witnessed 
on the road to Golgotha, the hill on which Jesus was crucified. I'd never had the experience on the way to the tomb that Mary had had. I'd never seen God, or so I thought. I was just a pasty white suburban kid with a pretty neat family. I got teased by my brothers and sisters. I have an older brother and sister and a younger sister. I got shoved through the milk chutes when our doors to the house were unlocked, were locked, and nobody could get in. I got to sit on the hump in the middle of the back seat between my older brother and sister. My younger sister, she sat on the armrest between my mom and dad, and we thought, I thought she was the safe one. <laughs> Even though I'd grown up in church, I thought, I don't have much to say about God. Maybe you've felt that lack of confidence too. And if that's you, you need to know there's another road on which people have encountered the Savior. And it's called the road to Emmaus. It's in Luke chapter 24. And it's the account of the Emmaus travelers. They are leaving Jerusalem on the day of the resurrection, not knowing what had just happened that morning. So if you brought your Bibles with you, we'll be reading from Luke chapter 24, and I'm going to be picking it up in verse 13. So Mary had encountered Jesus at the tomb. She ran, and she got Peter and John. They went and saw the tomb was empty. Now, nobody was there, like, with a countdown. He's coming back. Ten, nine, eight. Look, the sunrise is coming. Okay, get the camera angles. There was nobody at the tomb when Jesus rose from the dead. Why? Because they thought he was dead. Yeah. That was the end. But something happened that morning. And while that was going on, in verse 13, that same day, two of them, two of them were going to a village called Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem. Remember, everybody walked. They were talking to each other about everything that had happened. And as they talked and they discussed these things with each other, Jesus himself came up and walked along with them. But they were kept from recognizing him. Jesus asked them, what are you discussing together as you walk along? And they stood still like their faces downcast. One of them, named Cleopas, asked him, dude, are you the only visitor to Jerusalem who hasn't heard any of the things that have happened there these last days? The dude was something I added. Verse 19, what things, Jesus asked. <laughs> About Jesus of Nazareth, they replied. He was a prophet. He was powerful in word and deed before God and all the people. The chief priests and our rulers handed him over to be sentenced to death, and they crucified him. But we had hoped that he was the one who was going to redeem Israel. You know what the word redeem is? When you redeem a coupon or redeem something online, it gives value to whatever that number or that code is. We had hoped Jesus was going to be the one that was going to redeem Israel. And what's more, it's the third day since all this took place. In addition, some of our women amazed us. They went to the tomb early this morning, but didn't find his body. And they came and told us they had seen a vision of angels 
who said he was alive. I love that it's the women that God chose to make known the resurrection. Verse 24, then some of our companions went to the tomb and they found it just as the women had said. But him, meaning Jesus, they did not see. Jesus said to them, how foolish you are. How slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Did not the Christ have to suffer these things and then enter his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, Jesus explained to them what was said in all the scriptures concerning himself. As they approached the village to which they were going, Jesus acted as if he were going farther, but they urged him strongly, stay with us for it's nearly evening, the day is almost over. So Jesus went in to stay with them and when he was at the table with them, what does this sound like? He took bread, he gave thanks, he broke it and began to give it to them. Remember this was normal everyday stuff. And then, verse 31, their eyes were opened and they recognized him and he disappeared from their sight. They asked each other, weren't our hearts burning within us while he talked to us on the road and opened the scriptures to us? They got up and they returned at once to Jerusalem and there they found the 11 because Judas had taken his life. You know, both Judas and Peter betrayed Jesus. If only Judas would have waited three more days like Peter did. They got there and they found the 11 and those with them assembled together and saying, it's true, the Lord has risen and has appeared to Simon. And then the two told them what happened on the way and how Jesus was recognized by them when he broke the bread. Here's the first thing you gotta know when you are reading scriptures and you are looking for your own encounter with Jesus. It's this, the people in the Bible, they didn't know they were in the Bible. Think about it. People in the Bible didn't know they were in the Bible. They were just doing life. And word got out. What if we just work at doing life with Jesus so word could get out? Let's break this down a little bit. Luke begins this section by saying, the same day two of them, what two? We don't know. The two reverts back to the 11 and all the rest. Sort of like those of us who grew up with Gilligan's Island, the professor and Mary Ann. Yeah, but they left them out for the first two seasons until people protested. The movie star and the rest. Like what are they, chopped liver? I think it's comforting knowing that Jesus had close encounters with all kinds of people and maybe it's not so bad if you feel like you're not in the limelight and you feel like you're just one of the rest. Jesus will meet you on your road. They're going to this village called Emmaus and it was likely their home. Frederick Meekner writes this, Emmaus is where we go when the where these two went to try to forget about Jesus and the great failure of his life. Because that's what it was. All of this hope, all of this promise, all of this new kingdom stuff. And they thought it was all gone and what a waste. What a waste. He got too big for his britches. 
and they got him. Emmaus, symbolically, is where we go to forget about Jesus and the great failure of his life. I think all of us have an Emmaus eventually. Where's your Emmaus? You might be saying to yourself right now, I hate cancer. What a failure. I hate Alzheimer's. I hate divorce. I hate church splits. I got to get away. I hate broken relationships. I got to get somewhere. I hate the struggle. And yet God allows struggle. But you know what? I think God allows struggle because of this. Success has ruined far more people than failure ever has. Let me say that again. Success has ruined far more people than failure ever has. And here are these two walking dejected and confused back to their getaway. Maybe what you need to follow is your getaway. Wherever you go, to make it right for yourself, right or wrong. Look what happens next, verse 17. Jesus says, what are you discussing together as you walk along? Because he had just shown up. They stood still, their faces downcast. The one named Cleopas asked him, are you the only person in Jerusalem who doesn't know what's happened these days? What things, he asked, about Jesus of Nazareth, they're saying to Jesus, I think that's so funny. He's a prophet, powerful in word and deed before God and all the people. The chief priests and our rulers handed him over to be sentenced to death, and they crucified him. But we had hoped he was the one who was going to redeem Israel. Was there hope in the right place? Yeah. That he would redeem Israel? Yeah. In the way that they thought he would? No. No. He came for a much deeper redeeming. You know, as, as much as we offer ourselves to Jesus for healing and we've had physical healing take place here this week praise God at the altar as much as we've offered ourselves to Jesus for physical healing don't you know that it's his your soul that he is after a much much deeper healing we thought he was going to redeem Israel. And what's more, it's the third day since this took place. And then some women amazed us. They went to the tomb, didn't find his body. They came, they told us they had seen a vision of angels. And then some of the companions went to the tomb and they found it the way the women had said, but they didn't see him. Now this is ironic. Cleopas, who says, dude, you must be the only guy in Jerusalem that d didn't know what's been going on for the past week. Cleopas assumes that Jesus is the only person in Jerusalem who doesn't know what's going on when Jesus is the only person in Jerusalem who did know what was really going on. How insane is that? And then he does a pretty good job explaining the gospel. Explaining all of it, including the redemption story, the old redemption story. He neatly summarizes the gospel for this stranger. Cleopas and the others had hoped Jesus was the one to rescue them, but their hope was gone. And now it's the third day. You know, each day deepened the disciples' despair. Each day after this huge loss in their lives, they went deeper and deeper and lower and lower into despair. And you know, anyone who has been through a death of a loved one will tell you the funeral was helpful, the ritual was helpful, 
But it was the people three days later that called me. Or the people three weeks later who showed up and said, I'm here and I'm staying for two hours. What can I do? Dishes? Cut the grass? Just sit and not talk at you and not try to solve your problems, but just to be there. They were going deeper and deeper. Would that we could be the people, God's people, going in to other people's lives when the rest of the world is walking out and the scene has moved on. Jesus said to these two, how foolish you are and how slow of heart to believe all the prophets have spoken. Didn't the Christ have to suffer these things and then enter his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, Jesus explained to them what was said in all the scriptures concerning himself. Jesus said to their face in this close encounter, like, how foolish you are. How slow you are. Ouch. But you know what? That's so encouraging to me. Jesus isn't calling them fools. His target is their unbelief. You know, we love to excuse unbelief. We'll be working, trying to share faith with somebody, and, and then they, they're like, no, I, I'm just dealing with this unbelief. And we're like, okay. We claim sympathy for unbelief. But Jesus treats their unbelief very seriously. You know what? I, as a person with my personality mix, I do not take myself very seriously. You can't be good at playing the accordion and uh, in love with Marvel Comics way before the movies. I'm pleased with the movies, though. And love Hobbits and play Magic the Gathering and be really horrible at baseball when your dad was a major league pitcher and take yourself too seriously. That's me. And I had fiddled myself into thinking all God gave you was a talent to amuse people. There was a lie about myself that God revealed a year and a half ago when my Thursday men's group went up to our cottage up north and hung out and it took me back to when I was four years old and I was riding my big wheel with this red-headed kid around the block and I couldn't catch him. And I thought, I am not as good as these other guys. And I did not know that I had believed that lie. But it started then as just a kernel. And the, the kid didn't like say, oh, you're a loser or anything like that. I just remember thinking inside, and Satan got a hold of that lie in my life and let it live on for 45 years. Jesus' target is not that they're stupid. His target is their unbelief. You know, today it's all cool to doubt your beliefs. It's all cool to believe your doubts. So I just want to challenge you, whatever your generation, especially um, newer generations, it's all cool. It, it's all that to doubt your beliefs and to believe your doubts. But I just want to give you this invitation. What if it's time, and instead of doing that, which is the easiest thing in the world to do, what if you try believing your beliefs 
and doubting your doubts. What if that's God's invitation for you tonight? Jesus treats their unbelief very seriously. And as honest and understandable as it is, let's not readily excuse ourselves for mistrust of God. After all, you and I, you have survived 100% of your worst days. You've survived 100% of your worst days. If you're seeking, if you're not a believer, realize God says to you, you can save yourself a lot of trouble if you would try trusting my son. You know, when my kids feel sad, I feel sympathetic. But if they're sad because they won't think through a problem, my sympathy sort of changes. If one of them is sad because they want a toy and they won't walk over and get it, it would be completely uh, ignorant and inappropriate for me just to hand it to them. I wish they could see a little thought and consideration can often prevent a lot of sadness and doubt and pain. I wish we could all see that. The truth is, God has given us everything we need for salvation, for eternal life, and for life today. It's like the toy across the room. It's available if we choose to go over and get it. You know, does that require sacrifice? Does it require unfollowing? Yes. You know, it doesn't require giving 100% of yourself to God. Yeah, because if you don't, if you give God 95%, that 5% that's left over that you're holding back will dominate your life and mess you up. Either Jesus is Lord of all or he's not Lord at all in you. Sacrifice, if you reduce it down, is this. It's letting go of something you love for something that you love more. Are you willing? Jesus explains the witness of the scriptures to the Emmaus travelers. There is no replacement for scripture. There is no replacement for scripture. And Jesus gives us many roads on which to meet him. The road to Golgotha, the road to Jericho, the road to uh, Damascus, the road to Emmaus. He's there waiting with us, for us. No matter what road you're on, if you and I can read the promises of God in Scripture, if we can read our long list of troubles less and read the promises of God more, I believe we would see things differently. We'd rather run to Emmaus, though, wouldn't we, and focus exclusively on our feelings and on ourselves, on our little getaway. But Jesus says, think, dummy. He says it in a loving way. Think, dummy. Don't forget the words of your heavenly father. That's what he was explaining to these two uh, followers of his, Cleopas and the other disciple whose name we don't know. He's saying, don't forget the words of your heavenly father, of Jesus the Savior, of the Holy Spirit, who Jesus calls the comforter. Think of God's plan, his unchanging love, his power, his faithfulness, his mercy. Think of his promises, and as you do, you will be transformed. Literally, new tracks in your brain will be formed. Biologists have studied, if you go down a defeatist track, that will turn into a great rut for you for your entire life. But if you can think in a new way about yourself, about your goals, about who you're following, you'll create new pathways that God can use.
God's ways are not our ways. God chose the foolishness of the cross because God's foolishness is wiser than human wisdom and God's weakness is stronger than human strength. 1 Corinthians chapters 1 and 2. Talk about this if that's grabbing you. Why did it have to be so foolish? Because if it was wise in our eyes, we could have thunk it up ourselves. There is no way we would have come up with what God did for the salvation of the creation. The scriptures are still powerful ways for revealing Christ. No lightning bolt batteries required. You can be guided and strengthened by the Bible. So as they approached the village to which they were going, Jesus acted as if he was going farther, but they urged him strongly to stay, stay with us, for it's evening, the day's almost over. So he went to stay with them, and when, they were at, when he was at the table with them, he took the bread, he gave thanks, he broke it, he began to give it to them, and that's when their eyes were opened. That's when they recognized him, and he disappeared from their sight. And they said to each other, were not our hearts burning within us when he talked with us on the road and opened the what? The scriptures to us. You know, the fellowship and the discussion of the Bible prepares us to see Jesus. Fellowship and discussion of the Bible prepares us to see Jesus. If you are wondering if you are capable of a close encounter with Jesus, and you are not in... in the formation of some kind of a group that takes a look at Scripture on a weekly basis, that is God's charge for us leaving here. That we would find or we would put one together ourselves. My wife, Lee, and I, she teaches um, uh, Bible. To, uh, she taught 111 women in our Bible studies at our church. She's brilliant. But she said, you know, people don't, know just to open it to read it or they don't know where to start you can start in Genesis but start in the gospel of John open it there if you don't know where else to go and find someone else to do it with you the scriptures are such a powerful way and the fellowship is a part of it the breaking of bread that's why we eat ice cream every night <laughs> the power of Christ in our midst is there in that creamy goodness that's cold. The power of Christ in their midst opens their eyes. Hospitality and fellowship are vital. Jesus may not have stayed with them unless they had insisted. Do you know for many of us, the biggest um, resource that we have on this planet is our home. Have you opened your home to anyone lately? Notice that Jesus never forces himself on you. He allows you to invite him in. So then Jesus is the guest of the group, and he becomes Jesus the host at the table, just like Holy Communion. Hospitality breaks down walls. It eliminates any we-they thinking, and you will never know. You'll never know what blessings you might receive by giving hospitality. Open your home. Like Lee always says, if you're coming to see my house, warn me. If you're coming to see me, then come on in. Do you get that? How rare and how much we could combat the epidemic of loneliness that right now is rampant across generations but is most prevalent in 18 to 24-year-olds. They're literally calling it a health crisis and an epidemic. 
you will never know what blessings you might lose by foregoing a, a hospitality, even introverts among us. Here's something interesting. John Wesley, the founder of this Methodist movement in the 1700s, he never wanted to begin a denomination. He wanted to strengthen the Church of England by adding study and fellowship. He and George Whitefield preached about the same. For a couple of decades, George Whitefield, who was a brilliant preacher, his followers outnumbered John Wesley's. But Wesley never preached unless he could establish what they called at the time a class meeting, which is just a small group Bible study, a home group, a growth group, a life group, whatever we call them today. He would never preach unless he could set up a life group. As they went on through the decades, George Whitefield wrote this. He said, my followers are like a rope of sand. He preached and had tons of conversions, more than John Wesley. But he left his people vulnerable on the side of the road because he did not establish them in Bible study groups, in home groups, in that kind of fellowship where he's, George Whitefield said, Mr. Wesley chose the better path. There are no, there's no one who tra can trace their roots to Whitefield. But there's 40 million people in the world who can trace their roots to the Methodist revival. This present small group movement in our country today that is reviving Christianity is simply an extension of the fellowship and the Bible study of the Emmaus travelers. And it is a reflection of what the early church looked like. Many of us on our road to Emmaus need to be a part of that group too. And their hearts were burning. Here's the deal. If none of those other roads are yours and you're sort of stuck where I was, realize there's this thing called the road to Emmaus where in hindsight you say, wow, wasn't my heart burning when the Lord opened the scriptures to me? And their conversion, their close encounter with Jesus was every bit as vital as the Apostle Paul who got blinded and fell off his donkey. It was every bit as real as Simon of Cyrene, who on the road of suffering had to carry the cross for Jesus. Their hearts were burning. Hindsight is not glamorous, but hindsight combined with fellowship and hospitality and Bible study is often how many of us and the rest come to faith and come for freedom, for living. And I can honestly say my faith has grown and I have grown as a person more as a result of time with small growth groups and home groups than from any other source. Somehow Christ seems to show up on this road to Emmaus. That is this small group breaking open the scripture and allowing God to speak to us. Look at verse 33. They got up and returned at once to Jerusalem and there they found the 11 and those with them assembled and they said, it's true, the Lord is risen, he's appeared to Simon. And these two came and told him what had happened on the way and how Jesus was recognized by them in the breaking of the bread. And here's something that's really powerful if you think about this. We celebrate Easter so big. Jesus rose from the dead and he literally turned back death. Sin has lost its power. Death has lost its sting. 
And in a sense, that first Easter that changed everything ended with what you could call a Bible study. It's a fiercely quiet way to end a day that changed the world forever. Yet there's something so powerful about the fact that even the cosmos-shattering day ended like a Bible study session, encouraging one another, deepening relationship with Christ, fellowship, caring for one another, bringing others into their community, inviting others to come and open the scriptures that their hearts could burn to and raise up leaders who would change the world. And why not? Jesus is found throughout scripture. From Genesis to Revelation, it all points to him. And those two travelers, one of them's name was Cleopas. But Luke doesn't tell us the name of the other disciple. You know, that may be on purpose because that other disciple might just be you. What would you be willing to do with what you know? What are you willing to do with what you know? Would you begin a hospitality ministry, breaking bread together? Is God calling you to say, you know what? For crying out loud, it's time to get a few people together, drink coffee before work, check in, and open a devotional Bible study. It might just change your life. What if that other disciple is you? Would you walk alongside someone today? Would you ask Jesus to break out the scriptures for you today? I can't help but think that there's someone in this room and the road you're on is heading you back to some village or some escape. It could be out of a marriage you think you are out of. It could be out of exhaustion getting away from your kids. And Jesus is calling you back. And Jesus is calling you into that. It's time to come home to him and to his word. Their hearts were burning when Jesus opened the law of Moses and the prophets to him. Because through the Bible, God still speaks. You'll come to know God's love in Jesus. Jesus said this, you study the scriptures diligently because you think in them you have eternal life. But these are the very scriptures that testify about me in John chapter 5. From beginning to end, the scriptures are about Jesus, the saving, redeeming, rescuing grace that he gives. In Genesis, he's the breath of life. In Exodus, he's the Passover lamb. In Leviticus, he's our high priest. In Numbers, the fire by night. In Deuteronomy, he's Moses' voice. In Joshua, he's salvation's choice. Judges, he's the lawgiver. In Ruth, the kinsman redeemer. First and second Samuel, our trusted prophet. In Kings and Chronicles, he's sovereign. In Ezra, he's the true and faithful scribe. In Nehemiah, he's the rebuilder of broken walls and lives. In Esther, he is Mordecai's courage. In Job, the timeless redeemer. In Psalms, he is our morning song. In Proverbs, he is wisdom's cry. In Ecclesiastes, he is the time and season. In the Song of Solomon, he's the lover's dream. He is 
He is. He is. In Isaiah, he's the Prince of Peace. In Jeremiah, the weeping prophet. In Lamentations, the cry for Israel. In Ezekiel, he is called the call from sin. In Daniel, the stranger in the fire. In Hosea, he is forever faithful. In Joel, he's the Spirit's power. In Amos, the arms that carry us. In Obadiah, he's the Lord, our Savior. In Jonah, he is the great missionary. In Micah, he's the promise of peace. In Nahum, he is our strength and our shield. In Habakkuk and Zephaniah, he is pleading for revival. In Haggai, he restores a lost heritage. In Zechariah, our fountain. In Malachi, he is the son of righteousness, rising with healing in his wings. He is, he is, he is. In Matthew, in Mark, in Luke, and John, he is God and man and Messiah. In the book of Acts, he is the fire from heaven. In Romans, he is the grace of God. In Corinthians, he's the power of love. In Galatians, he is freedom from the curse of sin. In Ephesians, he is our glorious treasure. In Philippians, he is the servant's heart. In Colossians, he is the Godhead, Trinity. Thessalonians, our coming king. In Timothy, Titus, Philemon, he's our mediator. He is our faithful pastor. In Hebrews, he's the everlasting covenant. In James, he is the one who heals the sick. In First and Second Peter, he is our shepherd. In John and in Jude, he is the lover coming for his bride. In Revelation, he is the King of kings and the Lord of lords. He is, he is, he is the Prince of Peace, the Son of Man, the Lamb of God, the great I Am. He is the Alpha and the Omega, the one who is our Savior. He is Jesus Christ the Lord. And when time is no more, he is, he is, he is. Hallelujah. What a beautiful name it is. What a beautiful name it is. The name of Jesus Christ, my King. What a beautiful name it is. Nothing comes as it is. What a
God is calling you on the road that He has. And He's inviting you to lead. If He's inviting you to begin a study of the Scripture, if He's inviting you simply to open the Word with a friend, if He's inviting you to a ministry of hospitality, you need the Holy Spirit's anointing for this. As simple as this can be, over coffee with a friend. And so if you are, if, if God has spoken to you in this, and you would simply like an anointing where we would place some oil on your forehead and pray a brief prayer over you, whether it's for students, for seniors, for everyone in between. Several of us have anointing oil, Jesse, Kendall, Jennifer, we're here and we invite you forward. Death could not hold you. The veil tore before you. You silenced the boast of sin and the Whoa. 
nothing can stand against What a powerful name it is The name of Jesus What a powerful name it is The name of Jesus What a powerful name it is The name of Jesus as we continue to pray. We've just been handed a note to pray for Marge Ellenbaum who fell tonight and has been taken to the hospital. So as you continue to pray, let's also lift her up. Heavenly Father, we just pray for Marge. We pray uh, for her healing. We pray for the doctors who even now are caring for her. We pray that you would comfort her. We pray that you would comfort her family as well. Lord, we trust everything to you and we trust her situation to you. We know that you are the great healer, that you are working here in this tabernacle tonight, but you can also work there in the hospital room with her. And so we trust her care to you, Lord, in Jesus' name. July 31st. Tonight is your night. Tonight is God's night. And he's called many people to open the scriptures to friends, acquaintances, co-workers, that they would see Christ there, that they would see Jesus in hindsight, not glamorous, but let's face it, for those of us that are on that road, it's every bit as much a call of God as any of the other ways. So many people are lost and don't know what road, what path they're on. They're literally Googling it to see what they should do. They're looking for something. And they go out searching. They go to their Emmaus, whatever that thing is that they have no business going to, that God is inviting us to unfollow. This evening, as you go from here, know that you go, that the altar is still here. We'll have the music go for several more minutes and keep this attitude of prayer, of worship, of knowing that Jesus Christ has come to us to meet our every need. And he has called us his own. Not only has he called us his own, he's called us. And as you go, would you go in that humble confidence 
Would you give hospitality? Would you give people the word of God in a way that they have yet to hear? Knowing you're completely inadequate for the job, and so am I. But trusting in the mission of Christ, who from beginning to end is the name above every name. And it's in his name that we're called, and it's in his name that we go. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.